0: attend church for a variety of reasons, some good, some not so good. But I think for most, church is a place distinct from what we often refer to as the world. Should the church be active in the enemy territory we call the world? Should the church influence the world? How much should the world influence the church? And here's the main question, what use is the church in the world? We'll tackle this topic on today's edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, I think we have to define our terms. The term world appears frequently in both the Old and New Testaments, but based on the context surrounding the use of the term, it doesn't always seem to mean the same thing. What's going on?
1: So the world, um, the way the the Bible uses the word world, it can mean either what God has created, sort of the cosmos is the Greek word uh, in the New Testament, just the universe, what God's created. Paul says in Acts 16, he's preaching a sermon, and he says, um, he's he's preaching to a a group of people who are uh, polytheists, pagans, and he says that the one true God is the God who created the whole world and everything that's in it. It can also sometimes refer to the people of the world. Um, So Jesus says in John 1, or uh, John says in John 1, that Jesus came into the world, but the world didn't know him. And so depending on what it means, it can mean the created order, or it can mean the people that are in the created order, and that usually affects the context.
0: Are those different words in the original languages that we have translated all into one word "world"? So the um the word
1: the the, the way the word "world" is used in the Bible it can mean a couple things. One, it can mean um, the created order, uh, the the, uh, the universe. The Greek word in the New Testament uh, that's sometimes translated "world," frequently translated "world" is cosmos. We get the word cosmology from that and. It uh, just means the created order. Paul says in a sermon, he's preaching a sermon in the book of Acts to um, some polytheists, some pagans, and he's, he argues in that sermon that there's one true God who, he says, made the world and everything in it. And he, he means all created order. It can also mean um, the people in the world. So uh, John, in the Gospel of John, says that Jesus came into the world, but that the world didn't know him. And he means the people there. So depending upon which, like, like you said, the context, depending upon which context, it, it changes the meaning a bit, whether you're talking about the created order, the cosmos in general, or people in particular.
0: Are there different words in Greek or Hebrew for, that are translated in English into the word world, which sort of becomes a source of confusion then for us?
1: Uh, No, not really. There there are different words. There's, you know, cosmos means uh, world. Uh, There's the word "gay," which 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 can mean earth. But usually, you can tell from the context. It's basically it's the way that we would use the word "world." You know, the whole wide world. We would say uh, talking about you know nature and uh, oceans and uh, continents. But we could also say we could also say something like, "Man, the world's going crazy right now." And what we mean is the people in the world. So it just depends on the context.
0: It's my impression, although I haven't necessarily researched this, that the primary use of the word "world" in Scripture is a negative. Uh, the world is a is an unsaved place. It's a, a an evil place. Is that true?
1: Um, well, for in some parts of the Bible, that is true. The world, especially for. Um, especially in the gospel of John and in the three letters of John and in the book of Revelation which was written by John the world is a place that it's the world is a word that he uses to describe humans who've rebelled against God so like the text i quoted he um he came into his own but his own didn't know him or receive him yeah so he can use the word world as this it, it's it, it's the cosmos in rebellion against the creator god so love not the world neither the things that are in the world he says and and this is what he means the world in rebellion
0: so when i see the term world used that way i th- i think i clearly pick up on a sort of a negative connotation in its context and then comes along god so loved the world right and then it's, well how does that fit
1: yeah Well, so God is determined to win back his rebellious creation, and so the world can be a negative thing uh, because humans have rebelled. It can also be a really positive thing because it belongs to God, and God loves it, and he's determined by the death and resurrection of his son to win it back for himself, and he's determined in the end to get it all back, and so in that sense, it can be positive.
0: So you mentioned John, the Bible book where the term world appears more than any other is the Gospel of John, some 61 times, depending on the translation we look at. In chapter 1, John writes in a single sentence, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So why do you think John talks about the world as much as he does, so much more than any other biblical writer?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. John... John sees the cosmic, the, the world scope of salvation. John's, John doesn't want us to think that Jesus came to rescue, merely rescue our individual souls from unhappiness or um, sin or even future damnation. John's, John sees Jesus' mission, the scope of Jesus' mission, as being cosmic. God is determined to win back the entire universe to himself, which has fallen because of our sin. And so right off the get-go, like you quoted that text, and I had mentioned it earlier John in John 1, right off the get-go all the way till the last chapter of the book of Revelation, John is determined to say, hey, this is what we're dealing with here. This is the playing field. This isn't about God saving individual people so that they feel better or they feel less guilt. This is about God winning back all of creation.
0: Do you think that the average person sitting in the pew thinks about these things? Thinks about the church, its relationship to the world, what the world is as they understand it, maybe with not as much biblical background as we're talking about here. How does the do you think the average how does the average Christian estimate these things or think through these things? Or do they even bother to do that?
1: I think that more and more uh, Christians are, and the type of Christianity I grew up in, uh, we didn't think about these things because we had a sort of narrow-minded view of what salvation was. Salvation was about me and my relationship, my personal relationship with God, which, I, of course, I'm not denying that that's a very, very important part of any single human being's existential uh, the, the the way they live their lives, the, uh, the very very important whether they think about it or not. However, I think more and more the church is coming to realize that God does have cosmic goals, and so when they sit in the pew, I hope now um, this falls on me. I, I you know I, I I preach in Christian churches, and so this falls on me to emphasize that we do. We do live in the world. And not just as, it's not just a geographical comment, right? I mean, everybody knows kind of where, we, but we are called to be in the world for the world because that's Jesus's goal. I hope that's more and more the case. There used to be, like I said, there used to be this sort of pietistic, um, just me and my walk with Jesus. That's what I'm here for. Or, you know, for uh, uh, searchers, for uh, non Christians who are searching like this, how can I, you know, I feel guilty for sins, or like, how can I get to heaven when I die, or some question like that used to be on people's minds. More and more, we're, we're being troubled by cosmic questions. W- what's wrong with the world? Large social issues, that's what we're concerned about, and I think that what we're coming to see is that the gospel addresses those world issues.
0: What did you mean by the use of the word pietistic in understanding this?
1: Oh, I, just, I probably didn't even need to use that word there, but just sort of like... um you know, a spiritual, maybe I used it a bit uh, negatively, too. The connotation I was using, it was probably a bit negative, although there's nothing wrong with piety, of course, but sort of the notion that, like, personal spirituality is what Christianity is all about. That is not what Christianity is all about. Important element of it, but Christianity is about God's mission to rescue the world.
0: And you said that the Christianity that you grew up in, you made reference to that. Um, you care to share your background as in growing up.
1: Yeah, so I grew up. Uh, I grew up in um, uh, a bat, a Baptist church. It was an independent Baptist church. Um, uh, we would have self described as a fundamentalist. Um, there's a lot that I have got good good memories of the church that I grew up in, uh, of course, and a lot of things I disagree with about the church that I grew up in. So it's kind of a a mixed bag. But we definitely thought of ourselves as—so Richard Niebuhr wrote a book about 50 or 60 years ago called uh, Christ Against Culture, and he outlines in that book um, the different ways the Christian church has historically engaged with culture. And, And the very first one is Christ Against Culture, where the culture is evil and bad and worldly and Christ stands in opposition to it. And so you reject it, you don't involve yourself in it. And we definitely were in the Christ against culture camp. Uh, so I, I didn't, you know, the, the 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 church that I grew up in, uh, we didn't attend uh, movies in the theater. Uh, we dressed differently than the world, that sort of thing. And again, there's a good impulse behind all of that. But the way that it understands how Jesus relates to culture is misguided and short circuits the mission. It short circuits the possibility of perhaps Christ engaging with culture.
0: The Apostle John, referring to him again, quotes Jesus in John 14 as saying, The ruler of this world is coming. And I just sort of had it in the back of my mind that God is the ruler of all things, right, including right. this world. But Jesus is not referring to his father here, I don't think. I yeah. think. He's referring to the enemy. Yeah. So what's going on there?
1: Yeah, so that's a great, that's a good, that's the kind of text that the church that I grew up in we would have focused on as a reason for being against culture is because, especially John, this is a, this is a point with John, um, that um, the ruler of this world is the enemy, it is the evil one. It's the accuser. It's Satan. And John's real, John says this more than a handful of times in his gospel. And in uh, 1 John 5, he says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so he clearly teaches that the world is underneath, to some extent, the authority of Satan. And so that's a good reason to reject the world and not want to be a part of it.
0: Here's a question that uh, I've heard different answers to. I don't think the answer is necessarily monolithic, so I'm interested in how you see it. But when Satan tempted Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, he offers him all, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and offers them to Jesus if Jesus would just fall down and worship him. Right. If Satan is the ruler of the world... Was he making a legitimate offer there, a real offer, or was he just a liar and Jesus saw through it? Or is there another option?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think probably both. I mean, he had no intentions of giving Jesus any sort of authority that he had. He- he's an incredible liar. It was an absolute power play. It was a tempt— it was an attempt to to bait Jesus into being subjugated by him, and that's the way Satan works. Satan promises power it's what he promised Adam and Eve in the garden it 's what he promises jesus in in the wilderness like you said it's what he promises us uh that you know if you if, if if you follow me, which typically in our culture it means um you translate this this is the way we usually encounter this temptation is um if you know you, you want to be in charge of yourself, you're actually going to be happy. If you can be in control of your own existence, if you can make your own decisions, if the people in your life would just listen to you for once, things would be better. And the, 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 that path uh, ends in slavery. But in the sense that he has that authority to some extent, the authority of the kingdoms of the world, Jesus doesn't deny it. Um, Jesus is there to take it away from him which he does. So, you know, so um, Gospel of John, 1 John, like you pointed out, Chuck, talks about how Satan is the ruler of this world. Jesus also insists that, and this might be confusing, Jesus also insists that he's the ruler of the world. In John chapter 16, he says uh, to his followers, take heart, I have overcome the world. And in the book of Revelation, um, he again, John quotes... um I can't remember if this is the angels or the elders who are chanting this. Uh, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He will reign forever and ever. So you have these two things going on, where on one hand, you know, Satan is the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says, uh, but Jesus is now the King of the universe. God has won back. And the way the church has typically interpreted this, and uh, the way that um, uh, the the, the Common first century Jewish way to interpret this was that there are two ages in human history. And the first is the age of the enemy where he controls. God is going to win back that control, win back that kingdom at some point uh, through his Messiah. Many Jews believed, Christians, the earliest Christians, including Jesus himself, agreed with this. The Messiah was going to be the agent by which God won that world back. What's happening now, this is the twist in the story, is that. Jesus rose from the dead early. You know, the name of the game in the original version of the story was that there's going to be this great resurrection, and then the creation was going to be renewed, and the enemy was going to be cast out, and that God would rule and reign. Jesus, like, jumped the gun. That first Easter, he rose from the dead as a precursor, as a down payment on the final resurrection from the dead when the enemy would be finally thrown out. And what that means is that we live now, according to the Bible, we live in this weird overlap between the ages, where we're still living in the age that we're still living in the old age, where the enemy to some extent still has some control. But Jesus' resurrection has inaugurated a new age, and we're now living in that overlap so that it's it's possible for John to both say uh, that uh, you know the that the ruler of this world is the enemy, and also possible for him to say Jesus has overcome the world, and now he reigns forever and ever. And the Christian church finds itself with the task of living between the ages, of living as um, you know in this world, but as a colony of the new creation, thrust forward into this into this world by the resurrection of Jesus. And so it becomes our task to live out what it means to live under the authority of the kingdom of God and the power of King Jesus here in this world, which rejects that authority now, but which is slowly being subjugated by the love of God and by the gospel of Jesus.
0: So in the introduction, I referred to the world as enemy territory. Is that a fair description?
1: Yes and no, right? So now that we see it. Yes and no. It's the old
0: yes and no answer. Yeah,
1: it is. It's a... Um, It is that the world is still opposed to God, but slowly but surely, the world is being brought underneath the power of the resurrection of Jesus through the agency of Christ's church. Uh, We are supposed to do this. And of course, uh, as soon as I say that, the ludicrousness of us bringing about the new age, the ludicrousness of us being the colony of King Jesus is just knowing what I know about myself and other Christians and the church in general throughout history. And yet uh, God insists that that is the case, that uh, the world is the enemy, but now the world is becoming God's territory once again.
0: So let's talk about the relationship then between the church, God's saved people, yeah, and enemy territory. I can think that uh, we have a lot of work to do there, or I can think touch not the unclean thing and right. just stay away from it, lock your doors. Could you describe the relationship? I'm not talking about individual Christians. I'm talking about the church right, okay. and the world.
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, the touch not the unclean thing, that emphasizes the fact that the world is an enemy, um, an enemy of God's. So – the church is to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of its mind for the express purpose that it can in turn transform the world as well. So, yeah, to live in, to, to live in both of these realities is... Confusing. Maybe confusing. It's a touchy thing. It's, it's hard work. It is hard work to consistently... You know, the two options, uh, if I can go back to uh, Niebuhr's, uh, paradigm there. the two His two first options are the easy ones, Christ against culture. That's touch not the unclean thing is the only word that God has to say about this relationship. And so we are going to reject the world. We're not going to have any part of it. Uh, we're going to deny it. We're going to sequester ourselves into some sort of Christian ghetto, and we're going to protect ourselves. Touch not the unclean thing. Uh, The Christ of culture is his second category, which is exactly the opposite, and much conservative Christianity fell into the first one, Christ against culture. Much liberal Christianity falls into the second one, the Christ of culture, where, and I just quoted this in a sermon, and I don't have it completely uh, memorized, but I was quoting um, something that uh, a liberal pastor I'm aware of said along the lines of, he, he believes that the church of Jesus Christ will always exist, but... The Holy Spirit is doing a new and fresh thing, which from uh, my perspective, and and I freely grant that maybe I'm not completely understanding what he's saying, it smells to me like as the culture goes, the church can go too. So we've seen the Christian church sort of accommodate itself to the sexual revolution. We've seen the Christian church accommodate itself to um, economic policies, one or the other, of, of the culture that it lives in. You know... During World War II, a, a large part of, uh, sadly, the Lutheran Church, the Catholic Church as well, in Germany, caved into Nazi ideology and just sort of absorbed it as a way. This is this is the Christ of culture. That's the opposite extreme. Uh, you know, hey, we're here for the world, and so we got to be relevant, and we've got to match up what they say. There, there are alternatives. Uh, Niebuhr, if I can, outlines a couple of others that are important. One is. Christ and paradox with culture. And Niebuhr doesn't like this one. I don't like it either. This is the notion that your church reality, your Christian reality is real. But the world, the cultural reality is real as well. So you go to church on Sundays and you really genuinely worship. That's who you are in that moment. But then you go out and about in the world and that's who you are there. The world has its own sort of existence. And these the church and the culture are running these sort of two parallel existence. And, and a lot of people in this camp would say, eventually, God's going to come and say, I'm joining you two up, and it's going to be all one great you know, new creation or heaven or whatever. But the way it looks for uh, many of my friends who subscribe to this model is, um, I do what I want during the week. And then, of course, I've got church. I can, you know, God forgives, you know. You'll hear this sometimes, and this is a true statement, but you'll hear the, 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 the classic Lutheran framework at the same time just and center as kind of a, an argument that this, these parallel existences work. Sometimes I'll give you another example where I see this. You know, I have some uh, friends uh, in the Lutheran church who very, very much hate the notion of contemporary music in church services. Now, they love it outside of church. But for some reason in church, they hate it. That's kind of a minor thing, but it's this notion that like, well, you have church culture and then culture, culture, and then never the two shall meet. And what I personally subscribe to is, because I think it's biblical, and I say subscribe to, I don't mean that I'm good at doing this. It's actually, like I say, it's hard work, and I'm certain that I'm a failure more often than I'm a success at this worldview, is Christ transforming culture, is that the culture, around, the culture around us, the, the way that people talk and think, and the TV shows that our cultures make, and the movies, and the music, and the novels, and the, the p- political system that we have, that Christ wants to transform those things. He's not ignoring those things. He doesn't say, well, that's, a, that's world business. I'm not worried about that. He's actually trying to transform the political system, he's trying to transform the entertainment industry, he's trying to transform race relations. He's trying to transform the way that we live in our neighborhoods and the way that we talk that? to our friends. The power of the Holy Spirit working in and, worth the, in and with the Christian church. So Christians are to be, that's a great question. Christians, oh, the
0: Christian church, here yes. it comes.
1: They, the Christian church is to be directly involved, not just in, this is going to be, I got to qualify what I'm saying, not just in worship. And by worship, I mean Sunday morning events where they get with people who look and talk and act just like them and say and sing and recite things that are mainly amenable to their own way of thinking within the club. The Christian church is to be engaged in the entire world. This means that, the, that Christians are to be involved in politics, both as politicians and as citizens. Christians are to be involved in the entertainment industry. Whatever job that we as individual Christians have, it is our calling not just to go there and. Do the job and make the money or volunteer and go home. It's not just our job to it's not just our job to go in and say, Hey, Jesus loves you. And here's some Bible verses that talk about Jesus loving you. That's important too. It's our job to transform our workplaces. It's our job to transform our entertainment venues and our hobbies, to be righteousness, to be justice, to be, like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, to be the salt of the earth. To be the light of the world, which implies that the world is prone to corruption, calling us the salt of the earth. It also implies a command to go out there, embed yourself in a world that's liable to cor- corruption, and start to be a preserving factor. The light of the world presumes that the world is a dark place, but it also presumes that Christians are called to expand that light so that it becomes, so that the darkness becomes lit. This is what we're called as a Christian church to do, is to be this salt and light and to transform the culture, to be the kingdom of God. God's not just, a ch- God's not just concerned with, our, with getting our souls to heaven. God is concerned with transforming the entire world until it becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, where he can reign forever and ever.
0: In your preaching and teaching, you place a high priority on community or the congregation, the church, the family yeah. of God. So how does community affect both individual and congregational, I don't know if that's the right term, group uh, interaction with the world?
1: Yeah. So again, we're not called to, the, the kingdom of God is, this is where the theology of adoption is so, so important. God is not determined just to save souls to go to heaven when they die. That's, he's barely interested in that. What God is doing is he's recreating a new family. He's creating a new community. And when we as Christians, transforming culture as a Christian, or, you know, we can call this evangelism or apologetics, it's way less interested in changing people's minds about important topics. You know, here, uh, uh, you're a sinner. I need to get you to believe that. This is all this is important. And it's way that the, the end goal is not to change people. Let me say it this way: changed minds is a part of it, changed emotions is a part of it, changed habits is a part of it. But the end goal, none of those are the end goal, the end goal is this new community that God is creating in Jesus Christ, this new family, a restored humanity. In that sense, the church is so vitally important because it's already a ready-made family or you know if you, if you will like i use this word early a colony here in the world and it's the church exists as a breathing living organic invitation to others to come be come be a part of this new family that's why so much of evangelism especially today especially in a post logical world a post-modern world a post enlightenment world evangelism is way less about changing people's minds And way more about offering community, a place where people's minds can be transformed within a family. And so the church is super important. Any sort of evangelism technique that involves like what humans can say to unbelievers is can possibly be helpful. But by and large, evangelism now in this world is happening when people crave acceptance, this new community where they can within that community have their minds and their thoughts and their emotions adjusted and shifted into a God-centered sort of thing, into a gospel-centered reality. But the church is vital. The church is—it's the colony of the kingdom of God, like I said.
0: Well, listening to you, it's like, all right, let's go. Let's saddle up and uh, let's ride. But then comes the question, if Christians make a good faith effort to have an impact on the world— isn't it possible that they risk a reverse outcome and wind up, instead of winning the world, being captured by the world? Yeah, that's definitely
1: possible. That's the church that I grew up in. That's what we were scared of. Is if you go out there, you're gonna, you know, you can go out there for little, uh, you know, uh, stealth raids, evangelism raids. You know, you go knock on some people's doors and you know, give them a gospel tract or something. But you don't want to get too involved because it'll attract you, and that certainly is a risk. Right, I mean that certainly is. It's it's happened before that the church has has caved into culture, and so it's going to take hard work to have our minds to to be transformed by the gospel, so that we know what truth is, that we can be the salt and light, that we don't become like the world, but but we remain the salt and light of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, at the end of the day, that is the name of the game. That risk is what it's all about. God risks Himself by becoming human. And he calls us to risk who we are by being in the world. It's what the incarnation is about. It's what being the church is about. Yeah, it's a risk. Of course it's a risk. Then, you know, not just caving into the world, which is a possibility, but being hated by the world, by being shunned, by being seen as an outsider. On on top of that, uh, this is not necessarily our reality now, but throughout church history, it has been the reality that Christians have been economically marginalized and even worse physically persecuted because of what they believe, that's the risk. But when the church does this, that salt starts to seep into the meat of the world and transform it, preserve it, make it new again. And the risk in the Bible,
0: and I believe the risk is totally worth it. So in our final minutes here in our conversation, let's go back to the original question that that I asked at the beginning. It's a very simple question. I can tell that it's a very complicated answer. But if someone were just to say to you, Aaron, what use is the church in the world? What would be your sifted down answer, the short answer to the question? Short answer, the church
1: is Christ's colony. It's actually the body of Christ. The church is Christ himself. Power of his resurrection, colonizing this world for his glory. The church is guaranteed not to be prevailed against. It is going to grow and grow until the whole world is rescued. That's the short answer.:
0: OK, one more. I lied. Um, the book of Revelation and other places seem to indicate that, <clears throat> excuse me, as we make our way toward what will eventually be the second coming of Christ things are going to get worse. It's not like we, the church, are going to be inspired by your talk today and we're going to go out and conquer the world and win it for, from east to west and north to south for Jesus. It's going to get worse. So that seems, it, it, do, am I misreading that or um, is is the reality that despite our best efforts, we're not going to ever reach a point where we can say, okay, Jesus, you can come back now. We've tidied everything up.
1: There's a lot of theological discussions that are hinted at in your question there. The question of uh, a pre Is that why
0: you're smiling at me the way you are there?
1: Son? Well, just that, you know, if you want a fast answer, it's not going to happen, but— uh... The question of premillennialism or amillennialism or postmillennialism, which we can talk about at some point in the future if anybody's interested in that, is embedded in this. Is is the Christian church going to be successful in the mission it's been called to, to transform the world into a place of just, justice, righteousness, and love in the name of Jesus? Or is the church going to get persecuted to the point of almost being wiped out? These are sort of two broad models I subscribe more to the second one and I do not deny it. I'm sorry. I subscribe more to the first one that the Christian church is going to be more and more successful. As long as we understand success in terms of more and more people are going to hear the gospel and the kingdom is going to grow. If we understand the word success to mean persecution is going to go away, that's not the case. Look, this analogy is not perfect, but maybe it's helpful. June 6, 1944, Uh, The Allied armies, uh, Britain, uh, U.S., Canada, storm the beaches of Normandy and get a foothold on continental Europe. For For all purposes, at that point, the fate of the Third Reich is guaranteed. Germany is going to lose. The war is effectively won. However, there's another year where this wounded beast, which knows it's going to be defeated, lashes out and lashes out. This is the place that the church finds itself in. We are the allied, thanks to the power of the resurrection of Jesus. We are on the beaches of Normandy. It is a guaranteed final victory. It's going to happen. It is going to be slow going. That, that road to Berlin is not going to be a fast one. And there's going to be lots of pain and hardships and sacrifices along the way. But it is a guaranteed victory. And if we can understand success in that in that terms... The, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Christ. This colony is going to grow and grow until it swallows up all of Glen Carbon, all of Edwardsville, all of St. Louis. It's going to expand and expand and, and meet up with other colonies. It does not mean that this wounded animal is not going to be lashing out in final vindictiveness, trying to kill what it knows as has killed it. So the task in front of us is large. It's scary. It's not clear that any, any individuals, any one of us individuals is going to come out of it unscathed. But it is a guarantee that the kingdom of God will prevail and that the kingdom of the world will once again belong to him.
0: It always seems like there's a yes and a no in the, in, to these questions. Always.
1: It's a cop-out, right? That's how I, that's how <laughs> I, I get out of clear, straight I don't think it's clear, a cop-out. I
0: think it's true. Yeah. But it does make it a little bit more difficult to grasp. We want to say thank you to listening to Craving Answers, Craving God with Aaron Miller, pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. And thank you to our listeners who submitted today's question. Please share your questions and comments on our website at stjamesglencarbon.org. Click Contact Us. Leave your message there. I'm Chuck Rathard. Thanks for listening.